0: Well, good morning. I don't know about you, but I figure there's at least one thing that we can all agree on. That we're actually looking forward to waking up a little earlier on a Sunday morning, putting on some decent clothes, getting in the car, and driving to church where we can all worship together. And while I'm certainly thankful for the technology that allows me to be on your screens here this morning, I think it's also okay to acknowledge that this is not normal. This is not how church is supposed to be. But at the same time as I thought through that this week, I also think this could be a profitable time for us as a church if we would take the time apart to really consider what worship truly is. Or to put it another way, maybe we could consider why we worship and who we worship. This week, as I was considering Palm Sunday and and, and not being able to meet together, I was conflicted a little bit as I thought through the reasons why I miss gathering together. And I was asking myself this question. Am I looking forward to having the church back in the building? Because it's what I have come to expect. You know, walking through the doors, seeing the smiles, getting the handshakes, drinking the not so good coffee as we listen to a Sunday school teacher coming into the sanctuary that we enjoy, listening to Rob play music that we like, listening to Pastor Keith give a sermon that encourages us. Is that why I'm excited to get Back together in church on Sunday? Or do I want to come back to church together as a family so I can worship Jesus as the body of Christ has always been intended to do? And that question caused me a little hesitation as I put this message together for today. This is less of a sermon and more of just a heart-to-heart. I spent a lot of time in the book of Matthew and thinking through this idea of worship and motivation and why I'm missing the body right now. And I think that on a day like today, when we celebrate Palm Sunday, the triumphal enter- entering into Jerusalem by Jesus, that it would be appropriate just to take a moment or two to pause and think through this idea about worship and specifically our expectations as it uh, pertains to worship and then what implications that these thoughts might have to our own lives. As I walked through the book of Matthew a few times, it didn't take very long for me to realize that Jesus spent most of his ministry defying expectations. He spent a lot of time provoking thought among both the religious and non-religious crowds. And so after living a relatively quiet life, Jesus begins his ministry around the age of 30 in the region of Galilee. Matthew chapter 4 verse 23 tells us this, Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So naturally, as he's going and healing everyone, it's not long before Jesus has quite the reputation. The crowds from all over start to come and follow and listen to what Jesus was saying. And so that brings us to Matthew chapter 5 through 7, what we now call the Sermon on the Mount. And I think one of the things that makes the Sermon on the Mount so compelling is not just that he was a great teacher, but that he was teaching something that wasn't at all expected, Clearly, Jesus wasn't another rabbi or teacher because he had insight that no one else did. As he goes through the Beatitudes, he starts to tell and say things that aren't familiar. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. These things were strange, yet intriguing. He would go on through the the Sermon on the Mount and, and bring out implications of the law. And how it wasn't just about the law, it was about the motivations behind the law. And so at the end of his sermon, at the end of chapter 7, Matthew gives us this commentary. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. You know, it's one thing to say unexpected or provocative things, but it's another thing to back up those teachings with powerful miracles, which is exactly what Jesus began to do next. We get into chapter 8 of Matthew, and he tells us that Jesus came down from the mountain and large crowds followed him. Right away, a man with leprosy came up and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, I just told you there is about to be some miraculous power happening, and it would be easy to to skim right to that next verse. But we would miss the huge amount of tension that's sitting right here in this verse. Lepers were not welcome, They were considered unclean. They were to stay away from people. The Old Testament even told people that had leprosy that they were to cover their mouth and if anyone was to get near them, they were to shout, unclean, unclean, as to keep their distance. But Jesus is coming down the mountain. The crowds, no doubt, are following Jesus as he descends and then all of a sudden, a leper is running towards Jesus, falling at his feet. I'm sure the crowds were astonished. They come to a halt. They are quiet. Maybe they start to inch away and all eyes are focused on Jesus. What's he going to do? Is he going to rebuke the leper? Is he going to tell him to go away? Is he going to avoid him? What is Jesus going to do? Well, whatever the people in the crowd were expecting... I guarantee you they weren't ready for what happens next. Verse three says, reaching out his hand, Jesus touched him saying, I am willing be made clean. Jesus reached out and touched the leper. No one touched a leper, but Jesus did. And immediately the leper was healed jesus told him not to tell anyone to go show the priests in essence his sins were forgiven he was made new through his meeting with jesus this would become jesus's paradigm as he continues to travel and to teach and to heal it seems like Jesus intentionally reaches out to the lowest of lows, to the outcast and the forgotten and brings them not only healing and restoration, but the message and hope of the kingdom, whether it be the poor, the blind, the sick, or even the demon possessed. To know Jesus was to know his power and to know his forgiveness. But his teaching and his healing weren't the only unexpected things about Jesus' ministry. Another unexpected aspect of Jesus' ministry was what he did whenever the crowds got too large. If we go back to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warns the crowds in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. We go to Matthew chapter 10. And Jesus says some strong things about what it looks like to acknowledge and follow Christ. He says that he came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be members of his household. He's saying that it's not going to be easy to follow him. We continue on and these warnings are throughout the entire book of Matthew and the Gospels. We look at uh, chapter 16. Jesus looks to his disciples and again, he tells them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus clearly wasn't concerned about the number of people who were following him, only that they received the true message of the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't fit the typical mold of a religious teacher either. Not only did he teach with unprecedented authority, he constantly seemed to provoke the other religious leaders of the day. In Matthew 9, he incited the scribes because he dared to declare the sins of a paralytic man forgiven. Later, in that same chapter, the Pharisees accused Jesus of using the power of the devil, an accusation that they would continue to throw out throughout his ministry. In Matthew 12, Jesus warns the Pharisees that they are part of adulterous, and faithless generation he calls them hypocrites blind faithless whitewashed tombs snakes vipers and murderers but maybe most unexpected of all is the text that we read this morning describing christ's triumphal entry into jerusalem found in matthew chapter 21 By this time, we're nearly three years into Jesus' ministry. He has gained quite the following. Many are convinced that he is the true Messiah, the one that God promised to send to save his people. Israel was certainly expecting a king. As they entered into Passover week, they should have been familiar with with the things that they were about to see. Matthew describes the scene in the beginning verses of Matthew 21. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, telling them, Go into village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and He will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. You see, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was sending the disciples to get the foal so that he could ride in to Jerusalem and fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. It's quoted here in the text, verse 5 of Matthew 21. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. But the king that Israel was expecting was not necessarily this humble king riding in on a donkey. They might have forgotten this prophecy They knew that they were expecting a king, but the king that they were expecting was a powerful king, a king that would bring victory to Israel, a king that would throw off the oppressive Roman rulers, a king who would rule perfectly from Jerusalem. The timing was perfect as they were entering Passover week. Their rescue was on their mind as they recounted the story of God rescuing the ancient Israelites from the hard hand, of Pharaoh. So as they see Jesus riding on a donkey, heading towards Jerusalem, they are overwhelmed with an anxious expectation. Is this it? Is the Messiah finally going to reveal himself? I wonder how he's going to take on Rome. Where is the horse and the army and the military? Is he going to ask us to join? What kind of weapons do we need? The crowd of likely thousands was soon caught up in the excitement, the anticipation as they gave him the royal treatment. We look at verse 8 of verse 21. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna literally means save now. This was a common refrain. It's found back in Psalm 118. And the ancient Jewish people would recount this psalm every Passover. As the Jews anticipated Anticipated their conquering Messiah who would come and save them. We get to verse 10 and and Jesus reaches the city. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, Who is this? And then verse 11 comes and we get the response of the crowd. And honestly, the, the response of the crowd who had just been shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is really quite disappointing. It's quite disappointing. This is what they say. The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And this is disappointing because it really does reveal the, their true ignorance of who jesus was and why he came they were technically correct he was a prophet his name was jesus and he was from nazareth but they clearly did not know who he was and we know this is the case because over the next few days their expectations would be shattered as jesus is led to the cross You see, the crowds were ready to bow down and worship a conquering king, a king who would come into power and throw off the Romans, a king who would fix all their earthly troubles. But when they realized that Jesus wasn't going to give them what they wanted, they quickly turned on him. And their shouts of Hosanna to the son of David quickly became, crucify him. Crucify him. It was only a matter of days between their expectations being changed to them turning on Jesus. Which brings us to an important question that we should ask ourselves, maybe in this moment particular, when your expectations are shattered, when everything is turned upside down, when Jesus reveals himself to be maybe not what you thought he would be or even what you hoped he would be? What will you do? Do you know the true Jesus as he has revealed himself in Scripture? Or have you created a Jesus of your own imagination? It's an important question that each one of us needs to consider. But my thoughts this week particularly came back to worship. And our expectations have certainly changed when it comes to worship and and what worship really is. And I think, maybe my hope, is that we'll take this time, as we said in the beginning, to reconsider what worship is, to consider that aspect of who and why we worship My fear is that we have become so accustomed to what we want from worship that we might have forgotten or neglected what Jesus wants or expects from us in worship. We have been pretty spoiled as we come together on a Sunday morning. We walk through the doors and we like the smiles and the handshakes. We get to go downstairs and enjoy coffee and donuts as we listen to great teachers. We come into a comfortable sanctuary with comfortable pews and we get to listen to Rob lead us in music that really we enjoy. Pastor Keith brings us a message from the word each week. And all of those are good things. But if we are at the center, I think we've missed something important because as we go through the book of Matthew and all through the Gospels, we see that Jesus was really setting up a paradigm shift in worship from day one. He was preparing his followers to remember a forgotten but great reality that worship is first a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of place or rituals that we assign to it. You see, the Sermon of the Mount didn't get rid of the law. It actually elevated the law to prioritize the heart motivations behind the ones who wanted to follow it by healing the lepers, the sick, and even the demon-possessed. Jesus wasn't just demonstrating that he had power over the physical realm, but he was pointing to the greater reality of our heart sickness, this thing called sin, our need for a savior and his forgiveness. Jesus' problem with the Pharisees was not their zeal for the law but that they became so consumed with the legal adherence to the law that they missed the point of it altogether, which was to draw them into relationship, into worship of the one true God that then was revealed in the way they lived their lives and followed His laws. And then here, as Jesus enters His Passion Week, He again defies expectations and he reveals something to us about worship he comes as a servant he's riding on a beast of burden he's carrying the burdens of the world he would end the need for the temple the place of worship he would end the need for the rituals the sacrifices of the priests he does this through his ultimate sacrifice as the perfect lamb of God. All of Jesus' ministry was marked by this one core truth that Jesus came into this world so that we might have a personal relationship with God. That's where true worship begins in the heart as we respond to Jesus in faith, and in communion with Him. So as we end this morning, I want to challenge us with two thoughts. The first is simply, do I know Jesus as He has revealed Himself to be in Scripture? Do I know Jesus as the One who has forgiven me of my sins through His sacrificial death? on the cross because that's what we're remembering this week as we look forward to easter but the second thing i would like us to consider this morning goes back to worship to consider what worship truly is what we often struggle with is making worship all about me it's about what i want about what I like, what I prefer, what I need. And we miss the heart of worship, which is to be in relationship with Christ, to respond to what He has done for me. So as we take a little break from gathering together in the same place to worship, I want to challenge you to think about what worship truly looks like, and not just during this time of separation, but when we have the privilege of coming back together, that we would consider what it looks like to worship together in unity, what it would look like to come back excited, not just for the worship music, but excited to bring our worship through our song and corporate voice singing to Jesus. To not just come to hear the prayers of the people up front or on stage, but to engage in united prayer for one another because we know the promises of Christ. That we would come to worship ready to give Because giving isn't just about paying the church bills or the church employees, but it's an offering to God himself. To come not just so I could hear a good message, but so I can worship the King as I hear his word expounded and that I would open my heart and ask Jesus to continue to transform me from the inside out. To come not as an individual, but as just one part of the entire body. Understanding the significance and the worth and the value of being able to come together, to gather as the bride of Christ and worship Him. Because that's where worship begins. It starts in our hearts. It's centered on who Christ is. That is why we can gather today in separate homes, on separate screens, because we know that we're united in Christ first. And it's not about the building. It's about the people and the hearts that Jesus has has changed and transformed. He is the one who unites us together by his spirit and in his truth. So it's a good thing that we miss church, that we miss gathering together, that we want to be able to share communion with one another together in the same place. But it's also equally as important that we understand that worship first begins in each individual heart. That during this time of separation, that we would be able to focus on relationship with Christ first. So that when we gather back together, it will be that much more joyful as we gather together to worship the one true King, Jesus. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, I pray that you will, you will help us know you more, that we would open up your truth, that we would dive into deeper Relationship with you. That we would grow a deeper and greater understanding for the church body, what it means to gather together as a family and as a church. I pray that this time of separation would be a time of strengthening our faith and bond with one another, that we look forward to the day that we can gather together to sing your praise and worship you in spirit and in truth. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.